podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Nocturnalization is the ongoing expansion of the legitimate social and symbolic uses of the night. Ah, yes. Another episode of Smart People Podcast. SPP shout out. Not again. Yes. I'm one of your hosts, John Rojas. I'm Chris Stemp with the shout out. Yes, with the shout out. To our podcast. To the podcast. You are really not enjoying the shout out. That's all right. Thanks for tuning in anyways. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, As you noticed in my, what was it called? Cold opening? You got it. What is that? Radio lingo. All of your experience in radio land. I talked about nocturnalization. That is, it's kind of how the nighttime is utilized and how it, what do you, it shapes the social fabric of different societies. That's what we're talking about this episode. It's super interesting, but it's so unique. I mean, this topic is one that we could have searched for forever and not found if it wasn't for one article about sleep and sleep habits that, I don't know, we saw from an old guest or something, right? David McRaney, thank you very much. Yeah, it was on his Twitter feed, which pops up at work, and boom, I saw it. So I got in touch with this week's guest, Craig Koslovsky, and he wrote the book Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe. And it was so cool. I went, I I typed in the book, I looked on Amazon what it's about, and just the description alone, I don't know, it just kind of got me. He talks about how, how nighttime shapes the evolution of early Europe from what, 1400 or 1800 or something? Yeah, it's very cool. He's actually a PhD an associate professor of history at the University of Illinois. And as Chris mentioned, his area of specialization was early modern Europe. So, you know, 1400 to 1800 or so. And he just talks about the history of everyday life during those periods. But the coolest part is, is how, and he goes on to talk about it in the interview, but he wanted to look at history, not as a place, but as a time and not as a, I mean, sure as a time frame, but the time of night, like how does that change everything that happens? Because we take it for granted. You walk into your place, you click a switch and no matter what time of day or night, it's light, right? What about before that? Like you had to sleep based around it. You had to work based around it. You couldn't go outside. There was, he talks about feral wolves. I mean, well, they did have fire to be fair. So, you know, they would light their lamps and that kind of stuff, but the amount of output that you could get from that was extremely limited. Yeah. You know, it's not like flipping on a switch like you mentioned. Yeah, and the time it takes. Like, oh, my oh, God. Yeah. I would be way too lazy for that era. I couldn't even imagine trying to watch TV. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, Craig, is he's um, a very accomplished professor, author. Actually, this book won the 2011 Book of the Year Award. Uh, given for an author's first or second book in any field of history by History Today magazine, uh, which was really cool. He also received a National Endowment for the Humanities uh, Long-Term Fellowship for his work in this book as well. So a lot of cool things came of it because it's super, super interesting. Before we jump into the interview, I just want to mention, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click that Amazon banner, keep buying your stuff through Amazon that way. You guys have been awesome. You know, buying your items through our link has helped us out. It's put money in our pockets to keep this thing running, and we definitely appreciate it. So keep on doing that for us. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't really put money in our pockets, but it's actually kept us having clothes that contain pockets. 
You see what I'm, yeah. see what I'm getting at? Or the people's pockets that actually host our website and that kind of stuff. That's Because we owe them money. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely uh, head on over there. Check out everything we, we got going on. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Smart People Pod. It's really cool. Make sure to you know uh, check us out on iTunes, subscribe, all that good stuff. So enough about us. Let's learn about the nighttime and how it affected life back in back in the day. Craig, I, you know, first I just wanted to say, and we talked about it a little bit before the interview, that uh, you know you are a history guru, and it's something that. I find amazing because I've never really been extremely interested in history. I think I always looked at it as the class I had to go to and memorize everything. You know, like in math, I would solve (laughs) problems using knowledge. But history was just memorize everything in this 500-page book and you get a good grade. So what I wanted to ask was, have you always been fascinated by history? And also at the same time, um, what drew you into the subject? (laughs) Well, you know, I started off in college as a chemistry major, um, but I, uh, I, I figured out that I was maybe better with words than with numbers, so I moved over to history, and I've uh, been with it ever since. Um, when I was an undergrad, I studied in, uh, in England at the University of Warwick, and I was so amazed by the history faculty there that that was one of the things that drew me into the field. But, you know, I'd like to present history in a different way, Instead of history being the subject where you had to remember a lot of different things, I'd like to present history as the subject that you can use to annoy your roommate or your friend most effectively. <laughs> and I present it that way because everything has a history. And whatever your roommate or your friend is really into or really believes in or really wants to cling to, it has a history, and it definitely wasn't always the way it is now. I don't care whether it's the United States Constitution or belief in a supreme being or um, baseball, whatever it is. It has a history. It wasn't always the way it is now. And that fact, that that discussion could be brought out to kind of annoy or or, uh, engage. uh, (laughs) Either one. Yeah, so that's uh, that's one of the ways that I would present history for people who have only seen the boring, uh, fact-driven side of it. Because history is a dialogue between the past and the present. It's never going to end. There'll never be a definitive set of answers or a final history of any person or period. Uh, it's something that engages us as people on all different levels, rhetorical, emotional, intellectual, analytic. And so I got into writing this book on the history of the night in a number of of different ways. Um, When I was a graduate student, uh, I was a teaching assistant, and one of the books I had to teach was a book by a Jewish philosopher named Abraham Joshua Heschel, and uh, the book is called The Sabbath, and it's a discussion of what the Sabbath day means in Jewish religion, philosophy, and tradition. So I'd never encountered the book before, so I thought, mm, this is going to be interesting to teach. And one of the things that Heschel says right up front is that, in his view, for Jews, the Sabbath is the cathedral in time. And he goes on to write this book based on the argument that Judaism is about sacred time, and other religious traditions are about sacred space. So I thought, wow, time as a category of analysis instead of space. 
if you spent any time in the world of history or public history, you know that public history is all about spaces, right? So, you know, you're going to tour Fort Sumter, right? Or you're right. going to tour uh, Mount Vernon or Monticello. Um, you're going to see these, these historical sites and spaces. But that got me thinking, what about the history of time? Does time have a history, the day, the night, the year? And that was one of the things that got me into the topic, to look at time as a category of analysis. And it, my, historians in my field were very wrapped up in looking at space. And so they were writing about uh, the gardens of Versailles and the first attempts by rulers to uh, systematically map their territories, the importance of mapping and cartography in uh, European uh, exploration and colonization. But nobody was talking about time. And I said, hey, you can't have time without space. You can't have space without time. That's really how they're defined. So I thought, is it possible to do the history of time or a time? Does that make sense to you as a it, uh, as an introduction to the subject? It does, absolutely, actually. And you kind of stole one of my questions because um, I do want to talk about your book. And just as a teaser to those listening, the book is titled Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe. And it's it's incredibly thought-provoking. And like you said, it's something that not many people cover. Although once you hear the idea, you're like, oh... I should know more of this. And so, but before we dive into that, actually, do you find, because one of the things recently that's drawn me into history is this idea that we make the same mistakes over and over again, and it's cliche, but I'm starting to use that as an argument towards our current economic status, and then also um, military spending or overspending. Is it true that you can learn a lot about the future by studying the past? Well, you can definitely recognize patterns, and that's really that's really what it's about. And so we see patterns in election in, in election cycles. You know, we see patterns in economic cycles. Um, we see patterns in political responses. So you know, I do. And one of the things I show in in my book, Evening's Empire, is how people struggled to control the night. And I think we see that struggle to control particular aspects of our culture, our daily life, struggle for who has authority in a particular sphere. I think we see that a lot today. And the struggles that I highlight in my book, uh, you know, resonated to me with struggles that I saw today. The, you know, the first part of the book was written in the early years of the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq. And I was reading political theorists like Machiavelli who said, it's best to keep people in the dark and let your subjects know as little as possible about what's going on. Machiavelli says rulers have to project very carefully the image that they want their subjects to see. And Machiavelli has a very vivid, direct way with language. So he says in The Prince, many people see whom you seem to be. Very few people are close enough to touch you and find out who you really are. And we all have concerns about being deceived by our government or our leaders about any issues, domestic or foreign. And I could see that resonating because Machiavelli gives this advice. He says to rulers, you cannot let your subjects see you as you are. You have to project an image. And for Machiavelli, darkness is a very important part of projecting that image. So, yeah, I do see resonance with what's going on. The period I study starts in the middle of the 1400s and goes up to about 1800. So... I think of how different that world was. It's a world lit only by fire. It's a world that's pre-industrial, a world where people are really in tune with the natural cycles of the day and the year, 
even the wealthy who can afford artificial lighting. Uh, it's a world where life is uncertain. Death comes to people very quickly in a lot of ways that we don't have to worry about right now. But even though I think of how different the past is, I, uh, I still look at analogous situations, what I see in my book and what we see happening around us. Yeah, I mean, since we've mentioned it a little bit, let's dive into your book because from an outsider's perspective, you know, you've written it, you have a lot invested, but it's really a a description of how the night, the nighttime in general and darkness specifically has helped or hindered, I guess, the evolution of societies and the modern world. yeah, Yeah. The modern world. And that's such an incredible thought because it's something that we take completely for granted. But in that same token, different things, regardless of the fact that you can go into a Las Vegas hotel and not know what time of day it is, <laughs> yes, outside exactly. of that, different things still happen at night. I mean, you just know. When it gets dark out, when I was in my early 20s, I was like, I'm going to a bar. Now yeah. I'm going to bed. But I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a natural thing. So you kind of uh, start this book in the 1400s. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And at that point... What what did you see? What did you find? How different was it? And how were they affected by the lack of electricity and things like that? Well, you know, I start my book in the in the late medieval period in the 15th and 16th centuries. I, I look back further than that into the Middle Ages, and we see a night that is filled with natural and supernatural danger. I'm looking at people everywhere in Northern Europe in the British Isles, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, Switzerland, and for people in all those areas and far beyond, the night is a time of natural and supernatural danger. There are still wild, uh, feral wolves in the forests of Northern Europe at this time. So getting lost and wandering around at night could lead, lead you to be prey to one of those. Human danger from bandits and uh, thieves, criminals of all kinds, was a constant concern. But of course, these people also saw the night as a time of supernatural danger. That's when the devil felt most comfortable roaming around on earth in the minds of medieval people. And even medieval people who were active at night, like monks who woke up before dawn to pray, they did this as a group because they wanted the protection of a group against the supernatural dangers of the night. Now, at the same time, Cities like London and Paris were full of activity at night, but it was the kind of activity that you mentioned, young people going out to drink, to fight, to whore, to look for all kinds of illicit activity. No offense to you personally in your nighttime activity. No, you, you probably hit general. the nail on yeah, the head. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just pretty kidding. accurate. Come on. Yeah, yeah. But, so that's what people were trying to do at night. Technically, these cities had a curfew, and even though it couldn't be enforced, it was still in place, and anyone who the authorities wanted to bring in at night, they could. In England and in other European countries, there was a crime that was simply called night walking. The crime of night walking is simply walking around at night with no good reason. So for medieval people, the start of my book, the night is not a time when everybody's locked in their houses afraid. It's a time when young people, drinkers, prostitutes, johns, they're out in the world but none of that activity is legitimate or listen. Even though you say how, you know, it was the time the devil would come out, they weren't as afraid at this point. Did they eventually, and when I say they, I guess referring to them, I don't even know who them are at this well, point. Well, you're talking about ordinary people in, uh, you know, in early modern Europe. You know, uh, the you know, Europeans' ancestors 
back then. You know, anybody with any sense uh, was not supposed to be wandering around at night. Or if they were, they were supposed to have a light or a lantern, not to see, but to be seen. The wealthy and powerful could go out at night with a procession or an entourage of torchbearers uh, to kind of light their way through. What I find in my, in my book, the beginning of a new attitude toward darkness and the night, and it starts with the religious persecution in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. So by the year 1550, the unified Church of Rome has broken up into different churches, all of which hate and excommunicate one another. And there's a period of incredible turbulence here where rulers change from one religion to another overnight. Their subjects either have to follow along in that conversion or risk exile or persecution. And a lot of Christians, for the first time, around 1550, find themselves forced to worship at night. This is a new experience for Christians that hasn't happened since the time of the Roman persecutions. But all over Europe, every kind of Christian church has to worship at night. When Mary, the Catholic Queen of England, is in charge, Puritans have to meet secretly at night. When her sister Elizabeth, the Protestant, takes over, it's Catholics who have to go and worship underground. In some parts of Germany, Lutherans are worshiping at night. In other parts of Germany, the Lutherans have the upper hand. It's the Catholics and the Mennonites who are forced to worship at night. So all of these Christians do this, and they don't just worship at night, but they write about it, and they preach sermons about it, and they publish accounts of their persecution, the lengths they had to go to to worship God the way they thought God should be worshipped, and they start to take the stigma off of gathering at night. They can no longer say, as medieval people would, any gathering at night is by nature sketchy at best and diabolical at worst. And this is what, in my book, begins to change Europeans' attitude towards the night, begins to change the place of the night in European cultures. Now, is this the biggest change in regards to the night, or what would you say the biggest change was? Well, the bigger change, I think, comes when this new attitude toward the night goes from the spiritual world to the secular world. And this is a key argument that that I'd like to, to make to you and to other people who look at my book. Europeans make some profound uh, technological developments in the 17th century that make the night more accessible. They put up street lighting, sustained public street lighting for the first time in Europe in the 1670s, 1660s, 1670s. They improve uh, domestic lighting as well, but they don't do this because they've developed new technology. They do this because they have a new place for the night in their culture. And this really struck me because I think particularly Americans are used to thinking of history as driven by technology. You have a new technology, electricity, it changes what people can do. You have a new technology, personal automobile, changes the way people live, the way they court, uh, the way they, uh, the way young people uh, get to know each other, the way people travel. So we're used to thinking technology first, that comes out of the sky. You know, a new piece of technology drops down, and then society takes advantage of it and rearranges itself. But of course, no technology comes out of nowhere. And even, even an, an Edison you know, or a, a Galileo is an inventor because of what their culture makes them interested in. And in this case, Europeans, starting around 1650, have taken the stigma off of the night 
and they want to expand their activities into the night. They want to colonize it and make that time useful for respectable people. So one of the things they do to colonize the night is they put up street lighting. There's no new technology involved in the street lighting at all. We're talking about oil lamps in glass lanterns. And even if you're not a history buff, you can probably imagine how long has have oil lamps and glass been around in 1660. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, I'm thinking in my head, how, what did they do in 1660 to make street lamps? It's not like they just wire up some cables. So that, that you know, I didn't know what is street lighting back in the, you know. In well, that it's, uh, it's cumbersome, right. <laughs> but it's bigger than anything anyone had seen before. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're burning uh, olive oil or linseed oil or fish oil in lamps with cotton wicks the wind off of them. They're putting them in glass boxes or lanterns. In Paris, they do it a little bit differently. They put huge wax candles into lanterns and they hang them on cables over the middle of the street. What they don't have here is any particularly new technology. People could have done this in 1400. They could have done this in the Middle Ages. The oil's not new. (laughs) The lantern's not new. The cotton wick is a small innovation. Uh, The glass isn't new. But instead, they have a new will to go out and conquer the night. What was the, the level of impact on religion during this period, you know, when everybody started to want to travel out into the night on a more regular basis and they started hanging the lamps and all that kind of stuff? Did you see a direct, you know, uh, impact on religion as, I don't want to say like religion getting smaller, but were people shifting away from their religious beliefs to something well, different and more secular? That's a great question because um, I do see that, in, well, not only do I see that impact, but people at that time saw that impact. And so I have accounts from traditional Christians, whether they're Anglican in England or, or Catholic or, or Protestant in Germany, and they all say that uh, people are going out at night and they're going to one particular site, they're going to coffee houses. Uh, and when they get to these coffee houses at night, they start to talk about all kinds of suspicious subjects. They question the authority of their rulers. They question the truth of received religious tradition. And one of the first the things that, that everybody complains about is the questioning of the existence of ghosts, spirits, angels, and what we would call the what they would call the invisible world. So it was essentially the start of the I guess the concept of Twitter where these people could actually get together and talk about things that normally weren't talked about I guess exactly, in a free way. Exactly. And coffee houses were a great place to do that. Uh I mean coffee houses are open all day, but they're always depicted as being full of people at night. And so people would go to a coffee house at night to talk with people they had never met before. Um you could get anything you wanted to drink in a coffee house, including beer or wine or spirits, but everybody said, Hey the main beverages here are coffee or tea or chocolate, and these are not intoxicants. So the end of the evening is very different if you've been drinking a non-alcoholic beverage for a couple of hours than if you've been drinking only beer or wine or brandy for a couple of hours. And so they say, you know, midnight rolls around and people are not too drunk to talk and ready to go home. They're even more fired up from an evening of coffee drinking, right. and now they're starting to to really get into some hair-raising topics. Um, one churchman, uh, clergyman in the Church of England writes, um, no spirits, no God. Anybody who is sitting around in a coffee house and saying, ah, there's no such thing as ghosts, that person is either a secret 
or a deliberate atheist, and they're spreading disbelief, and they're doing it at night. So this is exactly the issue that we see here. And what's interesting is that these coffeehouse philosophers, as they were called, they know a little bit about ideas that come from Descartes or from Thomas Hobbes or from Spinoza or even from someone like John Locke. But of, of all the things that you can challenge, the things that they challenge are things that are associated with the night. Ghosts that come in the night, witches that gather at night, the revelations from angels at night, spirits that go bump in the night. And this is the thin edge of unbelief. Regarding the coffee houses and drinking coffee versus alcohol and whatnot, was that something new? I mean, was it like, hey, we have this extra time, we can be productive, now we need a stimulant? It's something like that. Historians have been hot on the trail of those connections. But if you, if you look in Chapter 5 of my book, you'll see a, a map that I created that shows all the European cities that established street lighting. No European city has public street lighting of any kind in 1660. By 1700, dozens of cities do. And if you had a map of the first coffee houses in Europe, and you laid it over the map of street lighting, you would see a remarkable parallel because this, this is the first age of coffee houses and the first age of street lighting. First coffee house in England is um, 1650 in Oxford. Coffee houses spring up in London by 1655. First coffee houses in Paris come a little bit later. Parisians are a little slower to get out of that. But by 1700, every European city of any size has to have and does have a coffee house. People are definitely looking for a different relationship to the night. And based on my research, this is an aspect of my, my research that I haven't published yet. The coffee that people are drinking at these coffee houses in their first generation, say from 1660 to 1700, it doesn't look like it has a lot of caffeine in it. And these Europeans, remember, they've never had coffee before. They don't even know what it's supposed to taste like or what it's supposed to do for you. The word caffeine is not invented until the 1830s, so no one knows what's supposed to be in coffee or tea. Oh, wow. Very few, some Europeans have traveled to the Ottoman Empire where coffee houses are long established, and they've had proper coffee in Istanbul or Aleppo or Smyrna, and they've noticed that it has a powerful kick to it. <laughs> the coffee that Europeans are drinking in their coffee houses, it doesn't seem to have a lot of caffeine in it. Nobody says it keeps them awake at night, but it definitely does not have any alcohol in it. Right. And so for the first time, Europeans are socializing around a non-alcoholic beverage. And that allows people to have a little bit more sober conversation at midnight. And, you know, if you've been drinking when midnight rolls around, you might think you saw a ghost on the way home from the tavern. You might think a lot of things. Right. Um, this is a, a, a small part of a process of secularization and it affects different people in different ways. The countryside is largely unaffected by this. That's another topic that I describe in my book. But for a minority of Europeans who are in cities, young people who are sitting down at uh, coffee houses or chocolate houses, um, they begin to see the night in a new way. And a lot of the aspects of traditional belief associated with the night are starting to fade in this new light. I can't help but when I hear coffee, midnight, nighttime, all that... I think of sleeping personally because I think I have partial narcolepsy or something, but 
I, did, did you come across sleeping habits, variations in that? I mean, I'm really fascinated by the subject, but, you know, if people from when there were no streetlights, were they going to bed at nine? And now there's streetlights and coffee, they're going to bed at two. Were they sleeping more, longer, later? Any of that? Chris, that's a great question here. You know, you got the instincts of a historian. It's not something you spent a lot of time doing. Yeah, I just uh, I just did an interview with uh, the BBC about the history of sleep and the history of the night, and it turned out to be a very popular subject on the uh, story on the BBC's website. So I've just finished talking with people about this. So. The first, the, the first work on the history of sleep comes from a colleague of mine named Roger E. Kirk, who teaches at uh, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. And back in 2001, E. Kirk published an article in which he showed that prior to the 17th century, Europeans had a very traditional sleeping pattern, and this corresponds to the way people sleep in sleep studies today um, and the way uh, pre-industrial people sleep which is what we call uh, biphasic sleep or segmented sleep. In pre-industrial Europe, people always had two sleeps. They would go to sleep an hour or two after sunset. That might be 6, 7, 8 o'clock. And they would have what they call their first sleep. That would take them up until sometime around midnight. And then they would have a period of being awake. Uh, Maybe they would look after their children, go outside and relieve themselves. Sometimes people would have these especially vivid dreams or, or waking dreams in this period. And then they would fall back into their second sleep, and that would take them up until just before dawn when it was time to get up, make use of the daylight, and do whatever work needed to be done. We see that, modern sleep researchers see that when they do those sleep studies, I'm sure you've heard of them, where they drop some poor guy in a cave with no no nap, you know, with, with no light, and they just see kind of what his sleep cycle becomes you know, without any exposure to artificial light and what his body rhythms set him up for. Yeah, I have seen that actually. Yeah, that's what that's what we that's how we evolve to sleep, at least when the night is long, in these two phases of sleep. And E. Kirk documented brilliantly that um, modern people kind of forgot that this was the tradition, but you see references to first and second sleep in the Bible, Iliad and the Odyssey, all the way through the ancient and medieval world. So we see this very clearly. We also see it in testimony at criminal trials because the witness will say, it was right after I started my second sleep when I heard the guy breaking in or I saw the flash of light or something like that. So the idea of first and second sleep was just very, very common to early modern people. But as you pointed out with your question there, with the arrival of street lighting, non-alcoholic beverages, and better domestic lighting also, people begin to slip, to shift from segmented sleep into what I call compressed sleep, which is the one eight-hour block. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, and that, that's the worst type of sleep, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's hard to say because um, we, can't, we can't go back to the uh, biphasic sleep or the segmented sleep anymore because when we expose ourselves to artificial light, that has the same effect as taking a drug on the human body. It changes melatonin production and other hormones, and it makes it impossible for us to have this biphasic sleep. So we're stuck Hmm. with the compressed sleep that we have now. Uh, It may not be particularly good for us, and it may not be the way the human race has done this for millions of years, but as long as we're exposed to artificial light after the sun goes down, we can't really stick with that. 
well, it sounds like a simpler time, but I guess those days are long gone. You know, and and I I have one more question. I know we got to let you go, but considering you are probably one of the most established or whatever historians that I'll ever talk to, I have to ask because I always wonder this. Are people getting dumber? And, and, and here's, here's why I ask this, honestly. When I read about, like, our founding fathers and Newton and, you know, all this stuff, these guys are like deities, you know? And am I just, am I just jaded? We actually have those people now. We just don't realize them? Because they say some really, really smart stuff back then. Well, you know, you know part of the problem with the way history is taught is that too often it focuses on, you know, great minds, great men, kings, and battles. And so we, we pick out these extraordinary individuals, and we don't see too much of everybody else in their time. So it's hard to say, really. People like Newton or Jefferson are not representative of their time by any means. Ordinary people, I think, have more access to more knowledge and I think spend more time trying to think analytically today than they did a couple hundred years ago. But I think because we have a more democratic idea of knowledge, I think we're all encouraged to overreach. We're all encouraged to think that we might know a lot more than we do. So I think when you see so many examples of dumbness in the media, or, you know, in my own life personally with dumb things that I do, I think that we don't stick to our area of expertise the way people did. I mean, uh, you know, there are a lot of things Newton was not very good at. He got a little bit more social as he got older, got a few people skills, but really not much. Whereas we are told to go out and be a salesman today, present this idea, stand up and teach this class tomorrow. You can do that home repair work yourself. Right. And when we try all those things, we're going to look dumb. Yeah, okay. Again, Craig, thanks so much for being on. And the book, Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe, is fascinating. Um, We'll definitely have a link from our website up there. Everyone check it out. I mean, it's something that... You might not come across and you know in your average book reading club, but um, it's it's definitely something you should add in there. I feel like so. Thanks for asking good questions because that makes it fun and easy. And uh, well, you know the nighttime is the right time. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the That's podcast. Right. All right, thanks so much. Best of luck, and uh, you know, thanks again. Cheers. Goodbye. Welcome back, everybody. That was Craig Koslowski talking about his book, Evening's Empire, A History of the Night in Early Modern Europe. And anytime you put the words history and Europe together, it sounds like it's going to be dry. But Craig was awesome. And that was so cool. I love when we can kind of dive into a very specific topic, learn something that there is no chance I ever would have learned before. That's what Smart People Podcast is about, huh, Roach? I agree. And you know, I would have never put two and two together that religion and society would change in ways based around things that we would never expect. Like the fact that they were using light to stay out later and actually sit around at coffee shops and talk together and just have conversations about things actually drove them away from talking about religion more. Yeah. That's really interesting. That is bizarre. Or how it can affect what you drink or like the sleep pattern thing that really gets me. Oh yeah, absolutely. We need to figure out the right way to sleep, man. (laughs) 
Four, what was it? Four on, one off, four back on, something like that. Pretty much. It was sleep one and sleep two. I could use sleep two and three tonight, actually, which I plan on doing. So everybody, thanks for tuning in. Really hope you learned something that uh, you're like, hmm, how did I get sucked into this? And thank you very much. And uh, if you do appreciate it, head on over to iTunes. Make sure to look us up, Smart People Podcast, and uh, rank us, vote us, give us a star or five, give us a little comment. Uh, We really appreciate it. It helps get the word out. Yeah, thank you guys. I'm not going to plug anything else. Just have a good rest of your week and uh, look forward to the next episode of Smart People Podcast. Take it easy. Mm